Um, well, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm Jonathan. I'm the minister at the People's Church in Partington, uh, just one of the Baptist churches down the road. Um, is this the, is this like the PowerPoint thing? I'm gonna. It's James, isn't it? I'm gonna trust you, James, because we don't have this newfangled technology really in Partington. So, just try and follow me. Well, we do, but it didn't work until last Sunday, and I've never used it. So, um, <clears throat> it's great to be here this morning. Uh, I'm a little bit croaky. Uh, it's just that time of year, isn't it, where you're just a bit ill, sort of through till February. And um, <clears throat> I'm a, one of our kids has been ill like all week, so a little bit sleep deprived as well. But uh, trust that you know God can still speak to you today. So. Uh, You're in a series in Joshua. Today we're in Joshua 7, and uh, there's loads to wrestle with, so we're going to get straight into it, and then we're going to unpack it a bit. Hopefully there'll be some words there. Hey, there we go. Um, Hopefully there'll be some more words. Okay, they'll just keep coming up. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai, Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They've violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why... The Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. 
along with all that belongs to him. He's violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing about 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Okay? See you next time. <laughs> right. So this isn't a tricky passage, is it, really, in the sense of understanding what's actually happening. Do you mean? You can read it. It makes sense. But it is perhaps a bit of an uncomfortable passage while we read it. Now, my understanding is that you've worked through some of the stuff in an introductory session, a kind of like about Joshua and some of the cultural stuff and the contextual stuff. And this looks a bit Old Testament, doesn't it? Um, you have done that, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Your minister says you have, so. <laughs> so you have, haven't you? Um, <clears throat> you know, and God at work in and despite the context and the culture. But, you know, it's a passage that whatever culture we find ourselves in has got big implications uh, for us as God's people. The God who led the Israelites and acted in this passage is the same God that we worship and serve. He's the same Father who sent the Son. And while we're a new covenant people, there are principles that are very relevant uh, for us in this passage that we do well to take in. But before we get to them it is worth reminding ourselves uh, what the devoted things are because it all sort of kicks off about the devoted things. We've got to remind ourselves a bit of what happens in Joshua 6 to understand Joshua 7, the backdrop. And uh, I believe that Chris preached on Joshua 6 last week. So I read that on your website. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Israelites marched around the city walls of Jericho in obedience to God, and the walls came tumbling down. But just before that moment, God gave clear instruction to his people, the final instructions before they went around the wall. God said this, The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her uh, in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as not to cover and to take any of the devoted things and therefore making the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble on it. All the silver and gold and all the uh, the vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. The last thing that God had spoken to his people was the money and the metal, you know, the precious metals, uh, they're valuable and retain it, but the rest is going to be destroyed. Do not go anywhere near any of the other stuff. Part of uh, Canaanite culture, a big part of Canaanite culture was not the worship of the Lord. You know, they, they were not Christians. Uh, they weren't even Israelites or Jews. That You know, it wasn't in their culture. It was rather, uh, you know, a center for Baal worship, Asherah poles, fertility cults. And Jericho was a city within that culture. And God has said, this has all got to go. It's all got to go. It's all going to be destroyed. All the stuff of this city is devoted to destruction. Don't go near the stuff that is devoted to destruction. Because false gods and cults and idol worships are not going to stand alongside the true God. The Lord who shares his glory with no other. That's the backdrop to Joshua 7. Where we then read of an unexpected defeat for the Israelites, which uh, causes Joshua and the elders to fall uh, face down before God. And God's been with them, hasn't he, up to now? In, uh, you know, in crossing the Jordan, he's opened up the waters, he's been with them in the battle of Jericho, and now the spies are sent to check out the land of Ai. And really, compared to the other stuff that the Israelites have achieved... I should be a doddle. It should be a foregone uh, conclusion of a victory. You know, we don't need all the men. Just send a few thousand and we'll still have them because it's just little old I. But the Israelites are unexpectedly defeated like an FA Cup upset against some minnows from a lower division. Uh, the Israelites had put, isn't that one of the best moments in recent years of football? Um, you know, the Israelites put out a weakened team and got defeated by I. And Joshua and the elders come before God in shock, in sorrow, in mourning, and God speaks. And he says, there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. That's what he says. That's God's response. It's easy, isn't it, when things uh, start to go wrong, when we start to feel the, water, the wheels fall off a little bit, to blame God. Anyone been there? No? Things are going great, and then things start to go a bit, well, not as you expected, and then you go, God, what are you doing? God, why is this happening? That was Joshua's initial response. No, he wasn't expecting to be beaten by I. God, why did you bring us across the Jordan and you take us this far just to get us defeated by these jokers a little bit further down the road? Now everyone's going to get us. We're going to be wiped out. We're going to be overcome. How will the world know about your great name? God, why have you done this? 
there's sin in the camp. That's a problem to God. You know, Joshua's question is right. How, what will people know about your great name, God? But his conclusion is wrong. What will the world know about God's great name? They'll know that he won't share his glory with anyone else. And they will know that sin matters. There is sin in the camp. Namely, the sin of Achan. But before I actually get to the sin of Achan, I think there's a problem of complacency that sets in. You know, in the preceding chapters, in all the bits you've been looking at up to now, all the way through there is this constant dialogue between the Lord and Joshua. You know, the Lord says to Joshua, do this. The Lord says, get the priests to do that. Get the people to do that. You know, from crossing the Jordan to the stones at Gilgal to the circumcision. Did you do a, 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 a preach on? No, okay. Um, to Jericho. It would have been a bit below the belt, wouldn't it, I guess? Um, but all the way through... All the way through the preceding chapters of Joshua, there's this, the Lord said to Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, and the Lord said to Joshua, and then Joshua did. You know, Joshua following the direction of his God. We get to Joshua 7, God didn't say, spy out the land and take I now. God didn't say, send less men, this is going to be a doddle. God wasn't saying anything about that. You know, I think maybe a bit of complacency had set in. Maybe a bit of arrogance had set in, a bit of assumed victory. God's with us. He's got us through the bigger stuff. Let's just go and do this one ourselves. You know, without really seeking him or pursuing his will and his purposes in the matter. And they fall. They're defeated. You know, we'll get to the sins of Achan in a minute. But has complacency set in with you? I don't mean church, but in your life where we seek God, you know, we press in for his help and his guidance in the big stuff, in the really, really important battles, but then we're doing it in our own strength and in our own wisdom in the less important stuff. You know, when we do that, we can come unstuck, can't we? The little things matter to God as well. God wants to be involved in the whole of our lives, not just the crisis points where we go, oh God, we really need you now. We're really going to pray now. <clears throat> so Joshua's on his knees before God. And God speaks of there being sin in the camp and to set the people apart and to consecrate them because in the morning it's going to be dealt with. And ultimately that ends in the judgment and the death of Achan. But here's where I want to sort of think through some different aspects of the story that are, are very relevant for us uh, today just as they were for the Israelites then. The first one's already there. First one, secret sin affects you. This is blindingly obvious, isn't it? Yeah, but secret sin affects you. If you're caught up in a world of secret sin, it will affect you. One day, someday, make no mistake, it will affect you. We see that not only in uh, the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament too. You think of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 6 and there's, uh, Acts 5 even, and the hidden uh, deceit there. But ultimately, secret sin affects you. When God uh, gives you 
That's a little bit keen, James. Go back, go back. When God gives an instruction to his people, it's for their good and his glory. Isn't it? You know, when God says something, it's for, for their good and his glory. And when you find yourself living opposed to God and you go against the direct instruction of God, it will affect you. It breaks down that relationship of trust, just as it did in the opening chapters of Genesis. It says, I'm putting myself and my own desires ahead of God's instruction and his plans. God says, don't do it, but you want it, so you do it anyway. It's like just basic disobedience, isn't it? We're affected internally by secret sin. I've met enough people who have lived with secret sin, as that is one of the perks of being a minister, to, um, <laughs> to know that it has affected their whole demeanour. Like, you know, it affects who they are. Emotionally, relationally, psychologically. They can become paranoid, extremely defensive. Depression can kick in. I'm not saying if you have any of these things, you are living in secret sin. I'm not saying that. No, don't start going, who's paranoid around here? But, um, but it affects who you are. Secret sin affects who you are. And it will also affect you in terms of consequences. Before we even get to, the, to God's consequences, simple cause and effect. If you are caught drink driving, there are consequences. That's secret sin, isn't it? You know, you know you're, you're over the limit. But you just do it. And if you don't get caught, you get away with it. But if you get caught, it will affect you. If your husband or wife finds out you've been unfaithful, there are consequences to that. It will affect you. If the tax man finds that you've been swindling them on your benefits claim or your tax return, it will affect you. And even if you get away with it for the duration of your life, you're still ultimately going to be answerable before God. It will affect you. We look at Achan, who had let greed for stuff become greater than his love for and his obedience to God. And we might find ourselves in the same place today. You know, maybe it's not quite as obvious as Achan's sin, but it's secret sin, that's the point, isn't it? Addiction, gambling, alcohol, pornography, gossip, abusive relationships or uh, power, idolatry that no one else knows about, where we go online, what we do in the workplace. Even when no one is looking, it will affect you. Secret sin affects you. Second one, secret sin affects the faith community, the whole faith community. In this uh, individualistic world that we find ourselves in, it's good to remember that my, your, our personal choices affect other people. Yeah, they affect those closest to me, those in the faith community, those in the church, and those who are not yet in the church. Let's take generic Christian person as the example. A lovely member of their local Baptist church, Lynn, and, uh, and they're caught in secret sin. And the family finds out, and it affects the family. But actually, what this passage in Joshua su uh, suggests to us is that secret sin of one can affect the whole community. Do you believe that? It's scary, that, isn't it? 
When one part of the body sins, the whole body is affected. Because it, it comes out. Most are hurt. Some are saddened. Some are outraged. Some become judgmental. Some feel the need to confess they've been doing the same thing as well. The whole body is affected. And the reputation of the body is affected. Just as the body of a man with a broken leg on crutches is affected by the injury, so too the whole body is affected by the sin of one part. When people see Christians who are choosing to live in sin, it affects the reputation of the whole body. You know, when people, maybe not everyone, but when people uh, find out that our church is a Baptist church, not everyone, but some of them say, what, like that Westboro Baptist church in America? Like, no, not like them. We're not like them, actually, at all. But they're a Baptist church. Oh, I know. And, but they're a bit weird, aren't they? The sin of, of one affects the whole body. Think of every person you know. Think of every person who knows you, even if you don't know them. You know, people you know personally, people who know you in the world of social media, or, or people who know of the church. This Bible-believing, I'm a follower of Christ-proclaiming, family-loving person is, you know, take your pick, having an affair, or addicted to porn, or has blown all the family's money on the credit card, or is just a really unpleasant, rage-filled person. What does that say about the body if you're the only person in the body that people know? You know, sin affects the whole body, doesn't it? The whole community. Is there secret sin in your life? Maybe what we'll do now is just leave the board here, get some more paper, and you can come and write your secret sins out and stick them up there. I'm just joking. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I know some of the examples that I've given are maybe at the more dramatic end of the scale, but you know, people who know you're a Christian watch your life. They watch your life. And secret sin often starts small and then it grows, unless it's dealt with. For Achan, it's only a bit of devoted stuff and silver and a bar of gold, but, you know, for God, that's enough. God doesn't measure quantity of sin like that. You know, he, he sees sin. Only a little yeast makes the full batch of dough rise, which leads us to the, to the third thing. Um, um being way behind on time here, aren't I? But um, I've, got, I've got two more points. I'll race through them. Any sin, secret or not, needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. We're new covenant people. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence that Christ died to forgive us for our sin, to bring freedom from that sin and to transform us on the inside that we become new people in Christ. And... Our sin needs dealing with. Now, grace is not an excuse to continue in sin, knowing that ultimately we'll be forgiven. In any other context, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? You know, to go, I know my boss likes me, so I'll just keep stealing from work. I know my wife will have me back, so I'll just continue seeing this other woman on the side. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? 
You know, you're going, what are you doing? Grace is not an excuse to carry on. It's an invitation to be forgiven and transformed. Paul writes, doesn't he, in Romans, shall we go on sinning? You know, where where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So should we go on sinning? And he says, by no means. By no means. To be forgiven and transformed, we need to acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our need for forgiveness, bring ourselves to the cross with repentant hearts and say, God, give me clean hands and a pure heart. God, change me. God, make me new. I think the thing about Achan is that he knew he'd done wrong. He knew that the next day the people were going to be assembled. Do you mean when when Joshua says there's sin in the camp and tomorrow we're going to all line up and God's going to sort it out? Achan knows at that point. He knew what was coming. It's all hypothetical. But there was a period between the day before and the next morning where Achan could have gone. Joshua can have a word. I'm the one who sinned. It was me. I did it. I've messed up. Is there, is there any way I can repent or whatever? You know, I did it. There was a period, wasn't there? But, but all the while, he kept quiet, hoping that judgment would pass by, still with the devoted items buried under the dirt in his tent until the Lord by his sovereign hand called him out. That's how some people live, isn't it? I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't be in this. I know I shouldn't be involved or doing it. But judgment's probably not going to come. So I'll just carry on. I think of some of the more recent stories in the news about Hollywood actors, sexual harassment, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, that's been in the news the last few weeks. You think, what, what a terrible thing to be caught up in. But... You know, it's, it's the same, isn't it? People who've kept quiet and hoped their sin would remain hidden, buried. But now, it's come out, and there are repercussions. Isn't that often the thing with sin? We just bury it, you know, dig a little hole, tuck it in there, put some soil over the top, hope nobody finds it, hope nobody notices. We've got to bring our sin into the light to find freedom and grace and forgiveness and transformation. Not that I have been on Alcoholics Anonymous, but the first step to freedom, if you're an alcoholic, is I have a problem and I need help. And so it is with secret sin. I have a problem and I need to bring it before the Lord. Bring it to the cross. All sin needs to be dealt with. God is a God of grace, but he calls us to be ruthless with sin in our own lives. Which leads us to the final part. God is holy and glorious and still calls his people to radical discipleship today, set apart for him. There might be some of us who are here this morning and we think, wow, isn't God's response to sin here a little extreme? Isn't God just loving? There's a danger that our version of God becomes shaped by the culture. You know, where culture defines what is acceptable, where culture defines what a loving response is, where culture defines what God should have done. 
Anyone here had a, a kid misbehave? Anyone here had your own kid misbehave? Yeah? Yeah, mine, no, never like that. But, um, <clears throat> but you know, as the, the loving response as a parent is not to go, ha, 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 that's great, you just carry on. You know, out of love comes discipline, doesn't it? Because you don't want your kid to do that again or to be like that forever. A loving response is not, that's great, you just carry on. Love says that is not okay. God is loving. God is gracious. God is forgiving. And he is also just and holy and righteous and glorious. And we hold all those things in tension together at the same time. You know, Jesus uh, forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery, didn't he? And he also said to her, now go and leave your life of sin. Imagine someone emptied your bank account. Imagine, you know, a person from Lim having their bank account emptied. Um, someone hacks into the system, totally clears you out, and then turned around and said, but you're a Christian. Just be loving. Just be loving. You know, when, when we're wronged, we want justice, don't we? When we're wronged, we want to see it put right. When we're in the wrong, we want mercy. In Christ at the cross, we find justice and mercy. Our sin and God's judgment on our sin and grace so that we can be forgiven and put right. You know, Achan's heart was turned away. Away from God towards self and nobody knew except God. But that's enough. You know, this passage comes as a warning to us out of God's love. Out of God's love to be ruthless with sin. It's easy to look at the sin in others, but just you know, try being ruthless with the sin in your own life. To get right with God and to get right with each other where that's needed. To be a city on a hill, a light on a stand. To live lives of radical obedience and discipleship. People following Jesus Christ. You know, you never know when you're going to be called to give an account, do you? You never know. What does it say to the world if Achan's sin is not dealt with? It says, yes, you can worship other gods. Yes, you can put self first. Yes, idolatry is fine. Yes, you can go against my direct teaching and instruction. Yes, how you live doesn't really matter. God's not like that. You know, God is love. But he calls us to close communion with him, to obedience to him, to, to follow him. That's what discipleship is, isn't it? It's not pray the prayer, get saved, and do what you want for the rest of your life. It's, it's follow Jesus. His word, his teaching, his example. Now picture the teacher on the first day of school who lets the kids get away with it. You ever had one of those teachers? Maybe you are one of those. No, you're not. Um, uh, <clears throat> but you know, I, I had those teachers. You had teachers who, who sort of set a line 
and you knew that you couldn't cross it and they taught you well. And then you had teachers who wanted to be liked and wanted to be your friend and they'd sort of let you get away with it a bit and, you know, carnage ensues for the rest of the year. God is love, but he's also just. God is full of grace, but he's not daft. If there's sin, there is forgiveness available. There is transformation. There is restoration. The Spirit of God at work in you. You know, sin doesn't have to be the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for Israel. It doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. But don't bury it. Don't hide it. It affects you. It affects those you love. It affects the body. It affects your witness. It affects the church's reputation. It affects your relationship with God. Don't bury it, but bring who you are and where you are to the foot of the cross where love and justice meet, where forgiveness is available and where a new start awaits. Receive grace and start again in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you're faithful. You're faithful to your people. You're faithful to your, your promises. You're faithful to your character. God, I thank you that for each of us here in this place, there is an invitation to receive grace, to make a new start, to be washed clean to be transformed by your grace. God, I pray that you would make us a people who will courageously and ruthlessly deal with the sin in our lives. Inviting you in, God, that you would do a work on us on the inside. God, renew our hearts, renew our minds. Lord, where there's stuff we're involved in that is hidden and secret, Give us the courage to bring those things out in the open, knowing that that is the first step to freedom. God, do a mighty work in your people and in your church that we would be a city on a hill and a light on a stand. A people whose, whose whole lives glorify you and, and point others to your great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.